1: And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And if you've been listening to AI Today, or if this is your first time listening to the AI Today podcast, the AI Today podcast is the place to go to hear interviews with AI thought leaders, insights into AI market trends, and adoption in public and private sectors, and conversations on key topics focusing on what's happening with AI today and in the future. So if you're new to AI Today podcast, you might not know this, but we've been doing this for the last four years with almost two. 200 episodes. And we've interviewed some incredible AI influencers and thought leaders in the industry, government, and research, including Ben Gertzel of SingularityNet and the Sophia Robot, Colin Angle, founder of iRobot, Anthony Scrifignano from Dunn and Bradstreet, Igor Perisic, the Chief Data Officer of LinkedIn, Suzette Kent, the U.S. Federal CIO, Jose Arieta, the CIO of U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Lord Tim Clement Jones of the UK House of Lords, key people at organizations large and small like Home Depot and GlaxoSmithKline key people at the OECD, and lots, lots more. So we really enjoy spending time with you and spending time here explaining key insights into AI and cognitive technology markets, how different industries are applying AI, and emerging concepts in AI machine learning. Long story short, if you want to understand how AI is being put into practice today and where it is heading, please make sure to subscribe to the AI Today podcast on your favorite podcast provider and listen to our hundreds of episodes episodes. So we have a great guest for you here today, and Kathleen will introduce and welcome him here.
0: Yes. So today with us, our guest is Dorman Bazell, who is the Chief Data Officer for the state of North Dakota. So hi, Dorman, and thanks for joining us today.
2: Morning, Kathleen and Ron. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to, to hang out with you guys for a little bit.
0: Yeah. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about your background and your current role as the Chief Data Officer for the state of North Dakota. Sure,
2: sure. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, So my my background is, um, you know... Went to college, got a degree in computer science, and mathematics, and and then went off. And like everyone else, uh, when I lived in St. Louis, you it was kind of a requirement you had to work for McDonnell Douglas, which is now Boeing Corporation. So did that for a bit, but but then after a while, um, got got involved in consulting, and. Worked my way up through the uh, consulting ranks as a developer and as a project manager, as a data architect, a solution architect, and then finally got into a position of driving business intelligence and analytics for a couple of large international consulting firms where I ran their North America big data and BI practices. Um, And a great ride. Um, thoroughly enjoyed all of the things we did. I think we added a lot of value to um, our customers, which uh, was private industry um, and and had great teams, um, had a strong onshore team, strong offshore teams, and delivered a lot of value. But I, th- I think that two years ago, uh, a little over two years ago, when I applied for this position as a chief data officer, um at first, I really didn't want the position, um, didn't like the idea of state government. State government uh, has, has a bad uh, connotation of, of kind of a nine to five job um, and uh, people, people who just weren't really motivated to, um, to move the world, change the world. And my boss, uh, who I interviewed, my boss now, the CIO, Sean Riley um, who I, I interviewed with his, his final comment to me was, well, I can't pay you what you make today, but are, do you want a paycheck or do you want to change the world? And I had never thought about life that way. I'd never tried to change the world. And, um, so I decided to take on this opportunity. Uh, this was the first chief data officer position for the state of North Dakota. So there were a lot of unknowns. Uh, certainly, certainly, my presence um, was a bit chaotic for the organization because I came in with a completely different agenda and a completely different way of looking at the world uh, through the eyes of uh, the pillars that uh, are assigned, aligned to me, which are application development and automation. And the second pillar is data analytics, data science, artificial intelligence, and had some very different opinions about those things and how we might move those forward um so, as I became involved with this role um i became i i had made an assumption that every state had a chief data officer and come to find out there are only twenty seven of us out of out of fifty states uh so it's it's an interesting uh it's an interesting mix of of individuals who are chief data officers and um getting to know them is it has been a really amazing opportunity because they, they have such a varied backgrounds. Um, and, and they bring such, such different perspectives to a chief data officer role. Um, I like to joke and tell people that the last thing I focus on is data, which is obviously not true, but, but my real focus is really around, um, cultural change, uh, within the, the CDO position and what that means in the context of not not necessarily data because I have two executives uh, on my team who um, are, just, are just brilliant at, at running the operations and, and managing the two pillars within my organization. My, my role is really focused around partnering with the CTO and our chief customer success officer and our chief information security officer around how do we, how do we change the nature of how we use data? Let's make data usable. Um, as you can imagine, in in state government, um, as in as in any organization that that I've I've walked through in my 32, 33 years of of doing this kind of work, uh, I hear the same three things: my data quality is bad, I don't know where my data comes from, and I run my business on Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Um, that that mantra exists here. Um, we are slowly changing that. I think we do a better job than a lot of uh, industries and, and other groups that I've seen uh, at corralling that, at changing that culture, and uh, focus, focusing people on actually being able to use data. We've, we've got a ways to go, but in the two and a half years since I've been here, um, I think we've made some some great strides in, in the way we're starting to use and think about data.
1: Yeah. You know, that's really interesting because it is a little surprising, only 27 of the 50 states have a chief data officer, I guess formally defined, although, you actually see chief data officer role itself is is fairly new, so maybe not totally surprising. I'm wondering what percentage of Fortune 1000 companies have CDOs, I'm hoping it's much higher percentage. But um, also people may not be aware that, you know, North Dakota has a pretty deep technology bench. I mean, you have a governor there who who basically joined Great Plains and grew that company gigantically and, you know, became chairman of the board for outlasting and lots of other companies. So it's a pretty pretty interesting technology bench. And I think that's really, really neat uh, that, that we have technology uh, roles that are are that understand the role of technology and understand a lot of the nuances of uh, data. Um, And I think that's fantastic. And you actually shared some of those insights at an AI in government event that we ran uh, last month, December 2020, which is available if you go to AI in government.com and you look for the, uh, the past um, episodes, if you will, the past sessions Uh, in December, uh, we had a great panel of chief data officers of which Dorman uh, was, Part and he shared. You shared some really interesting insights into uh, at, with your experiences as a chief data officer for the state of North Dakota. So, for those maybe on the podcast that we uh, want to encourage them to watch that that full panel, or maybe provide a little bit of insight. You know, maybe you could share some of those things that you shared with us if you can remember some of those great things about the experiences of of being CDO at the state level uh, in the government
2: yeah absolutely. Um, so i think um, let let me start with let me start with what I've learned at a very macro level, and that is technology and this are, this is rel- this is relatively speaking right technology is easy. people process and culture are hard um, that that message has been uh, broadcast loud and clear um, in in terms of what information has been fed to me um, The technology that we have here, older technology, uh, we have three mainframes. Um, We'll talk about that a little bit later uh, in the context of a workforce. But we have three mainframes that we're trying to get rid of. Largely, my team is composed of my application development team is .NET, Java, and WebSphere. And we're slowly turning the dial so that we're moving more into low-code, no-code environments um, for the application development side, robotic process automation using UiPath, and then on the analytic side, narrowing our focus for the moment on things like SAS, R, Python, uh, cognitive services. So um, the, the, I think the, the one big thing around that technology is that, that we have, we have a, a, an incredible team who can very rapidly pick up that technology and start using it. What we don't have, Right as a as a state just yet is a good way to understand what are the impacts around people processing culture, right? We have a mandate within the state from the governor to automate twenty percent of all our of all our uh, processes, manual processes, and that that creates a lot of fear in people. And what we're trying to tell people is that we're not trying to we're not trying to replace your job with a with a bot. What we're trying to do is take away the mundane, the repetitive nature of your work, and allow you, because we have an average tenure—I believe the average tenure of state employees is about 18 to 20 years—because um, you have such a wealth and, and depth of, of insight across the state, let's use that to further how we deploy services to our citizens. So, don't—we're not trying to replace people; we're we're trying to empower people. And in fact, if you look at what, what our governor has brought in, he's brought in six words, empower people, improve lives and inspire success. And that is, that is the overall overarching goal of everything that we do and what we focus on. In terms of the culture, um, we're, we're just moving down the path of, of change management. Um, getting, getting change management in, deployed in every project uh, that we that we um, that we focus on right is is it's it's less about checking a box on a spreadsheet saying yep we've done that or putting change management in a line on a project plan. It's more about changing the hearts and minds of people to to expect change. And and once you identify things that do need to change, let's expose them. Let's not hide it. Let's bring it forward. If we make mistakes, the the goal is let 's learn from the mistake let 's make smart mistakes let 's learn from those mistakes, and let's move forward um, it's it's taken me two years to get my team um, who um, you know as a as a team have have been very hierarchical in in their thinking, so i can 't do something until my boss tells me to do something. but what we've done is we've said, well wait a minute, no you're empowered to Make all the decisions that you can make within your, within your swim lane. So make those decisions. You don't need me to tell you if your code is wrong that you need to fix it. Fix your code, but do it the right way. Make sure it's, make sure it's managed properly through our ADO environment. Make sure that, that your leadership knows about it. Expose it to the client that we've got a problem we need to deal with. Here's how we're going to deal with that problem. So create transparency and, and focus, focus on empowering yourself to make those decisions. Uh, all of that is part of change management. And we're trying to do that not only at, at my team, but we're trying to do that across all of IT as well as across the entire state. Um, the advent of robotic process automation, AI analytics, uh, and data as an asset is, is a is a new construct for the state in many ways. And, and again, we're we're kind of, this is all very nascent. A lot of these things are hitting uh, the entire state all at one time. And a lot of that is being driven by, um, by the nature of COVID that has forced us to really take a step back, take a look at our data, our processes, our people, and go, what are we doing? Are we actually Empowering people, improving lives and inspiring success. Are we actually uh, fostering uh, for our, our tribal nations? Right? Are we actually fostering that sort of mantra into our tribal nations as well? How are we servicing people?
1: Yeah, that's very important because because at the end of the day, governments are are there to help service people. And that that's the the purpose of of what a lot of these uh, you know the agencies and the organizations do. And I think that's that's really very important um, for all those to to uh, consider um, in, in, in in all all of the various different organizations. You know, customers of companies need to think about as well, right?
0: exactly you know and it's interesting you bring up change management i think that it's very it can be very difficult to do you know it requires a lot of a lot of people to change their mindsets in the way that they have worked in the past so um i like how you laid that all out i know i know that we also we had you at our ai and government event on a panel which was incredible we have an upcoming event, our machine learning lifecycle conference. And we're going to have an additional panel there as well with uh with Dorman and some other state level CDOs. We're trying to bring that panel back. So hopefully we'll get everybody. But if not, it's going to be incredible. So we encourage you to check it out at mllifecycleconf.com. As always, it's free to attend. All of our online events are. So we encourage you to check that out. I know that at the state level though, you know, we we have a lot of people on our podcast and even at our AI and government events that are focused on uh, more of the federal level. But states have their own unique challenges as well. So what are some of the unique challenges around data, data science, and data privacy that occurs at the state level?
2: Yeah, great question, Kathleen. So if you think about how a, a, a state, and, and I'll I'll just speak for, for North Dakota, but I'm I'm guessing there's 49 other states that probably align to this. States think very agency focused, meaning that each agency is responsible for its own systems, its own data, its own analytics, its own processes. That is a a kind of a a model that just that business has has solved many moons ago, right? Not perfectly, but, but private industry has solved that problem. What we're trying to do is shift the focus from being an agency focus to being a from a very vertical focus on agencies to a very horizontal focus on the state. And the shift there, when you make that shift, what you do is you empower what what we call a citizen uh, digital platform. And what you get as a result of that is what I call the citizen activated state. And that is you get you get data that becomes. Um, consolidated into platforms. So lots of big words. Let me, let me put some context around that for you. So today we have 57 agencies in the state. Um, right now, theoretically, like right, Dorman, the profile called Dorman exists in 57 agencies. That means when I move from my my home here in Bismarck, to another home in Bismarck, I have to go into 57 websites and change my name, my, or my address, my information, so that the state, right now, the state knows where I live. What we're trying to focus on is the big challenges is that let's, let's reduce our costs of data management by consolidating all of that data. But not only do we wanna consolidate Dorman into a single pool of citizens. But what we want to do is give Dorman the ability to go in and tell the state, hey, this I have moved. I, I Dorman now am responsible for my own data management, if you will. And I can now tell the state, this is where I live. And now everyone within the state, all the processes within the state, now understand where Dorman lives because if once you remove and you abstract data to a state level, what your agencies become, yeah. Are very process-intensive um, organizations that leverage a single pool, a single thread of data. Um, that requires, obviously, that requires additional funding. It goes back to the people, process, and uh, culture are hard. Model the technology is pretty easy to do. All of that. Um, we've got to change the culture. We've got, we have to have funding. We have to have appropriations for it. We have to have more FTEs for it. And we'll talk about workforce in a little bit, I'm sure. Um, So we we're trying to bring all of that together. Plus it involves, it involves rethinking how we deliver our services to the state. And this is where artificial intelligence comes in. So what today, again, if, if, the persona of Dorman wants to understand what services are available, Dorman has to scoop through 57 different websites to find out if there's anything out there that he might be interested in or or if there's anything that he is eligible for. What we want to do through a persona-driven model is use artificial intelligence to, to serve up services to individuals based on there maybe it's their preferences maybe it's where they live the county and where they live maybe it's the city where they live so for example we have we have cities here with five people in it maybe they're eligible for some for different services as a result of a low population count versus where i am in bismarck Um, so we want we want ai to serve up data to to serve up services to citizens and allow citizens to select the services they want um, but it also requires that cultural shift so that citizens understand I am responsible for telling the state who I am in the context of, of data and especially data privacy. Um, we, we, as a state and my boss frames it this way, um, he says, you know, if, if Amazon loses your data, you can go to target. If target loses your data, you can go to Walmart and, and follow that train on trail, um, you know, wherever you want to take your business, but what happens if state government loses your data or state government gets breached? So we have a moral responsibility to maintain the integrity of our citizen data, and the moral responsibility to empower people, improve lives, and inspire success through the services and the the data that we provide to our citizens. So very very big daunting type of uh, thinking, right? For for me personally, going back to that role as a CDO and walking new into the state, very different kind of thinking for me Um, because um, now everything, I look at everything I do as as impacting 749,000 other citizens. And so everything I do has to, Take into account that moral that moral responsibility. Have we put enough governance, for example, around our artificial intelligence, so that we're not violating uh, people's people's privacy? Uh, are we maintaining Are we maintaining the integrity of our data? Do we have our data classified well? Are we Are we sharing only the data that we should and retaining, um, um, not violating things like HIPAA and FERPA and and FTI uh, laws, so it's it, it's it's certainly a very different kind of um, thinking for me personally, um, and and that cultural shift um, in in terms of our data science capability, you know, that, so it's an emerging capability, right? We we now have a data lake, um, we have a an operating model for our data science layer. Um, what we're still focused on and still building out is our data governance, or our, I'm sorry, data science capability uh, around governance. Um, data science, AI, um, depending on which end of the spectrum you're on, you're either a Ray Kurz wireless, where where eventually we all morph into machines or you're kind of at the other end of that spectrum where you, um, you know, we'll make great pets to, to robots. Um, you know, there's those two polar opposites, but there's also that in between where I believe that governance allows us to keep out of those, out of those ditches on either side of, of that, of that AI lane. And at a minimum, The governance model that we're working to develop has to be auditable and it has to be explainable. We're pulling in legislators and uh, university uh, individuals and citizens and agencies to understand and create that governance model so that we have a 360 degree view of that model so that it is transparent and it, it is auditable and it is explainable. Um, so that, so that we're not violating people's rights, so that our citizens are even our citizens, right? I have a vision that our citizens can start using this data through an open, through an open source portal. Uh, I want to make our agencies very independent in terms of their ability to leverage data through good data quality, uh, good metadata and integrated data sets out of the data lake. So that they have a three hundred and sixty degree view of our citizens, so that the services they provide and when they talk to a citizen, um, are meet the needs of that citizen.
1: Yeah, well that that's that's really great, you know. And what you said about um, agencies controlling their own systems and their own data is very consistent with what we heard. We had an interview on AI today with the Chief Data Officer of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Carlos Rivero. And uh, he was talking about some of the challenges they had and trying to do some statewide rollouts, in part because of, of sort of like all these discrete systems. So I think that's part of the, the the uh, always the challenge is trying to affect change when when you have a lot of these moving parts and pieces. Um, so um, maybe you could share some some s- interesting insights or some surprising things. Uh, that maybe people may may not know about uh, state or local governments and how they are applying machine learning and AI technologies. Uh, I know we had a really interesting interview with the um, assistant or deputy city manager for the city of Winchester, Virginia, and they've been doing trials with autonomous vehicles. And we're like, that's really interesting. You don't hear about this at the local government level. You hear maybe about at the state government level, federal level. So always some interesting things happening at the state and local level and maybe have some surprise insights for us as well
2: yeah so i ron i think one of the things that that we're trying to um, create a a, a cultural perspective with our citizens and uh, especially with our legislators right is that ai is ai is ambient right It, it exists if you have a smartphone you have ai but you don't see it and it it, because why don't you see it? Because it's doing, it's doing things for you. Now there's right again, depending on which end of that spectrum we are on, you can, you, you want to, you can think about how that, how that is doing it and maybe it's violating your privacy, but, but the AM, AI is, is ambient. So we want AI to become a part of just, just our everyday lives. Um and and to make it make it transparent so that it is part of everyone's life so that they understand when you type something into the Google search engine, there is AI sitting back there. So sometimes that's a that's a very difficult conversation to have. Uh, my team, when we go out to talk to clients, we're not talking about machine learning or artificial intelligence. Um because one they they, they don't need to understand how the sausage is made, if you will. What they need to understand is, can we deliver the outcomes that they're, that they're requesting? So as a, as a state, we have to, to learn and grow. And we have to do a better job of, of making AI visible, but, but making it ambient, more ambient in terms of the services that we offer to our citizens. So, in in terms of how we're doing that and where we're doing that in in the state, um, you know, certainly we're starting within in the the state the state government itself. Uh, again, our, our COVID has brought brought forward the opportunity for us to r- really stretch our legs around what we're doing around data science uh, and and machine learning in the context of COVID and and. Um, how we're managing, how we're managing the rollout of vaccinations and how we've been managing the numbers around, uh, positivity rates and negative results and PCR and, and all of those things. Um, and how we're providing and serving that data up to our, our unified command, which is the governor and his team, but also how we're exposing that to our citizens to make, create awareness. Again, they don't know all the details around how that's how that is uh, put together, they see the results, but the results are managed through uh, really good governance on the back end. Some of the other areas that we're focused on in terms of the the state of North Dakota, uh, and I think one of the things I might have talked about last night, or uh, last time on our our, um, CDO conversation with you all, was around uh, the Grand Farm. Uh, Grand Farm, Grand Sky, and Grand Energy. So these are these are Grand Farm is a is a think of it as autonomous farming. I I joke about it and say there's a there's a guy and a dog and and the the, the guy's job is to feed the dog on a on a fully autonomous farm. But essentially, what we're talking about are connected uh, connected vehicles, right? Connected combines and plows and uh, lawnmowers and tractors, right? All connected via a 5G infrastructure, all connected via IoT devices around the farm and all communicating with each other, letting them, under, helping them understand each other, understand what are their performance characteristics? What are they finding out in the field? Um, what kind of, what's the weather like? What is the soil like? What's the water level like in the field? Right now, You know, North Dakota is undergoing a, a drought that's been creeping across the state. And so this autonomous farm will, will begin taking all of those into, um, into account as, as we begin rolling out the autonomous farm across the state. Uh, that autonomous farm is scheduled to um, be implemented by 2025. We have some of that in the works right now on uh, out near Grand Forks. Uh, and the reason one reason why that's out near Grand Forks is because of our Grand Sky initiative. And Grand Sky is really um, uh, UAV unmanned area uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. And and what we're doing with the Grand Farm is integrating UAV data with with those autonomous vehicles so that we can, now we have a, a much broader perspective of what the land looks like um, from, from the sky. And we can feed that information into these autonomous vehicles. And again, we can, we can enrich the data set and enrich how those vehicles can operate on that farm and their ability to um, um, it cr- create food production. Right for for North Dakota, uh, revenue for North Dakota, as well as you know, feed the world. So we're pulling we're pulling all of that um, information, or we will be pulling all of that information into an environment for um, for Grand Farm. Um, we're also looking at, for example, at the University of North Dakota. and they, these are, by the way, these are just one example, many examples. Um, I, I could probably talk about what we're doing in North Dakota for a long, long time, um, but these are these are some of the highlights of, of conversations that I've had re- just recently. Uh, virtual reality for pilot training. What what we've learned uh, through through pilot training is that we can get a 400% increase in the effectiveness of a pilot if we train them virtually and then put them in a cockpit, or if we train them virtually and they're also also have cockpit training as actual cockpit training as well and so we reduce the uh the incident of accident uh we create air safety we create flight safety because a lot of these planes especially some of these smaller planes are flying over they're flying over cities they're flying over farm fields and so we create this safety uh through through this training at North Dakota State University, um, we, we actually are using virtual reality and artificial intelligence to train people how to uh, repair drilling equipment uh, through a set of uh, of uh, tactile gloves that they put on. They can actually grab a part for a, a piece of drilling equipment and they can actually feel what that part um it, it, the shape of that part and how it feels and how it actually fits onto a spindle, perhaps. Um, the other thing that we're doing is um, we're, we're giving people, geologists, uh, hydrologists, the opportunity to go in down, down into a, a fracked area
0: um,
2: so that they understand what, what happens underground when you actually uh, do fracking. And it allows people to to go down into that that area to understand it and to to improve our fracking capabilities. Obviously, lots of um, lots of lots of concerns, questions around fracking. But in North Dakota, 46 uh, percent of our revenue comes from from the oil patch up in our um, our northwestern part of our state. It's a reality we're trying to make it better we're trying to do better things the other thing that in in north dakota that we certainly recognize is that um as as the rest of the world you can kind of see this if you look at what california is doing in terms of by 2025 they won't be selling hydrocarbon uh, automobiles anymore hydrocarbon hydrocarbon economies across the world are are shifting right they're shifting out of that hydrocarbon into electric or at least into alternative energy uh for cars so we in north dakota have to take advantage of of that that idea and through our grand energy initiative we have to come up with other other methods and other ways to offset offset the revenues that we're that we will be losing uh over time from that uh from that oil patch um, in terms of, in terms of aspirational type of virtual reality, one of the things that that I'm really interested in is virtual reality to treat things like PTSD, uh, uh, or, or autism. So for example, uh, I have a grandson who is autistic and, uh, what, what I'm really interested in is the virtual, virtual reality classroom, given Given again COVID and, you know, we know where we've been on the COVID journey. We're not sure where we're going on the COVID journey. Hopefully it's very positive. I think we're all optimistic that it is. But if we, if we have a large return to a virtual classroom environment, what kind of tools can we give teachers to help my grandson to be more productive in the class? He's already, he's already, he's on the autism scale. He's very gifted. He has 132 IQ, but he still has autism. And it would be helpful for the teacher to be able to understand how is he interacting with other students in this virtual world? What motivates him to get up out of his chair and go be part of a team? What what doesn't motivate him? And then allow teachers to have a, a have better data at their fingertips to be able to teach and instruct um, instruct. For uh, for for autistic students, so that they become more integrated and and um, become more involved in the, in the classroom setting, and and thus you know as they expand into larger society, become integrated there as well. Um, so I, I mean, those are again. I, I can probably uh, spend the next hour talking to you about all the cool things we're doing in North Dakota. I haven't even touched on a million IoT sensors down Highway 94. Uh, Maybe I'll save that one for our conversation at the end of the month
0: that sounds great i know that you know tease our listeners into joining your panel for the machine learning life cycle conference um you know one thing so those those were all really great examples you know and i liked how how in depth you got with that um, and i know that was just scratching the surface but another thing that uh, we haven't really discussed yet is about um you know being able to attract a skilled workforce i know the federal government dealt with this but also just private industry and companies as well, Um, you know, there's a real talent crunch, especially for certain roles out there. So, what can states and local governments do to attract that skilled workforce that they need to keep up with technological innovations?
2: Yeah, great question, and it definitely is a um, challenge here in North Dakota. Uh, Prior to COVID, uh, we we had a, a negative unemployment um we had about if 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 my if my uh, memory serves we had about somewhere 3000 plus jobs that we couldn't fill and those were various types of jobs across the state um one of the challenges we have is when was the last time you heard someone say hey i really want to move to north dakota um Right. That, that in and of itself is a challenge. Uh, you know, uh, my friends back in St. Louis, where, where I'm originally from, you know, they, they seem to be under the impression that we're, we're very in this constant glaciated state, that even in the summertime, we're still out ice skating on the Missouri River because it's so cold up here always. Um, so we have a challenge around, um, moving to North Dakota. Um, so, so what what we're doing in north dakota is um in terms of the skill set it it depends on on kind of where you want to focus around skill sets so for example if i look at our um and people can go and they can look at this if they if they like uh, go to insights.nd.gov. what you'll see out there is our k through 12 data uh as well as you'll see uh our university system data uh and this is all around what what are what are kids interested in in k through 12. what are people um in in the university system what courses are they're taking and so what we find out is that we find out things like um for example salaries uh, for a programmer and for a uh, a network admin the, the salary is about 60, 65000 to $67,000 a year. And for programmers, right, it's very unattractive for me as a selling point to, to bring them into the state and uh, as state employees and say, by the way, uh, it looks like uh, you, do you know anything about COBOL because you might be working on a mainframe. Not a lot of interest from students graduating from the university these days and programming on a mainframe or programming in COBOL. It, it, in fact, we have one mainframe, and this is a, you, you can see this on the internet, but um, we have one mainframe where because the skill set is so limited, the, we had to actually go to Latvia to find uh, skilled workers who would actually work on our mainframe. Uh, so we have we have that challenge. How do we upskill those folks uh, and, and kind of bring them forward? Well, you know, one, the university system, for example, is creating masters of science, masters of uh, data science degrees. Um, so and if you think about if you think about a data scientist, you think about someone who is heavy into mathematics and someone who has a discipline around science. Right, understanding the scientific method and how to approach data, how to use data. And that seems to exist, that still seems to exist in at a university level, right? You you it's kind of like your doctor. You kind of want your doctor to, to go through medical school um, if he if he's going to operate on you. Um, but what we also need are skilled people who have basic programming skills. And for that, certainly the university system, we want to support, support those capabilities. But we also need some of those skills today and we need modern skills today. So when I say modern skills, I mean things like Microsoft Dynamics, uh, R, Python, um, basic database skills, right? Um, people who understand what it means to deploy a blockchain, Um, you know, we need people who uh, want to understand and want to be able to manipulate information and use data and can very quickly wrap their heads around uh, what a use case is, um, what that use case needs to be to move forward for a, for a citizen service and, and be able to help us, uh, craft, craft that out to the citizen. So we, we're looking for, um, We're looking for both sides of that equation. If you look at what we're doing with the Emerging Digital Academy, um, this is, this is a group associated aligned to the Grand Farm. But what they're producing are, are students in 22 months. They're, they're pushing students through a, a course of being able by the end of 22 months to come out as having very solid programming skills. They're not data scientists, but they're very, they're very smart people. Who can partner with someone who might be a data scientist uh, to, to who can help tell that story around around data science and around the data so it, it's I don't think it's an all or nothing proposition. I think it's going to require again, it's going to require a cultural shift, a people shift, a process shift uh, in in order to for for example, the state of North Dakota to not require A bachelor's degree for a programmer, a a developer, or or even a business analyst. So, um, it's a it's a it's. I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, I'm working with our HR teams to um, help rethink the art of the possible and the probable around people that we might bring in, Um, and and also having conversations with the university system around. Here are the skill sets that we need for the future. This is what we need to be able to do in order to move the state of North Dakota forward. And then it's a partnership also with the legislature because I don't have a legislative authority to just hire, go out and hire people as I need them. Uh, we're allocated a certain number of FTEs uh, for a biennium. Um, and then it, whenever I need additional skill sets, I have to go out to the market and bring in consultants and contractors to offset my my needs uh, to service the citizens. So, definitely, it's 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 not there. There is no easy fix for this. But having those conversations and approaching this um, through that cultural shift um, is. It, that's the way we're going to have to do this if we want to make inroads, if we want to have a skilled workforce for the state.
1: Yeah, that, that's incredibly important because you do want a skilled workforce, because if you live in a state, you don't want the technology that you're using at the state level to be developed by people who don't have skills so <laughs> or uh, on the flip side, you know a state basically going out and, and buying that technology from contractors and paying too much that all these things have happened before so we we definitely, uh, we we get the vibe of you know making sure that everybody's got the latest and greatest talent and you're right it is a, it's hard to compete for talent so all of our AI today podcast listeners out there that are perhaps going through school now maybe we have a lot of folks who are in data science who are going through the data science folks who are in in, in academic maybe research. Um, we encourage you to take a look at job sources that you might not be thinking about. Don't just think about the so-called Fang, you know, and the Microsoft and all those great companies those are great companies for sure. But there are some amazing challenges that are sound like just to be just as fantastic as the opportunities that you might see at some of these technology companies working for North Dakota. These great initiatives. So hey, that's just fantastic. Well, uh, we only have one more question. This is actually going to be one of our longest podcasts, which is fantastic. We're not going to slow you down or stop you. Have a lot to say on the subject. But I do want to ask you the last question that we usually ask our, pa- our our attendee, our presenters here, our guests on AI today, uh, which is as a final note, what do you believe of is the future of AI in general and its application to organizations governments and beyond
2: that's 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 a really big question um, so um, the future of AI um, so so just for my personal my my personal readings right to understand what is the shape of AI like right? what, what does it look like? You know, I, I use things like futureoflife.org. You mentioned, O um, uh, OECD, uh, there's Kurzweil.net world economic forum, Brookings institution, right? All great reads, all providing, uh, a lot of future, a lot of future around what's what's happening with AI today as, as well as where are we heading. But, but I would, I would say Ron, that, that i I think of AI at at two layers. One is a technology, right? That that is you know the the compute capacity, right? Uh, AI on a chip, quantum computing, R, Python, so on and so forth, right? Go down and go down the list on technologies. The second way I think about it is governance, and in my mind, governance is the is the big rock. If you don't get governance right, it doesn't matter what technology you've deployed because it, it, now you're just deploying technology for the sake of deploying technology. Um, the For for the governance side of this conversation, right, it, first of all, it's important to recognize that governance should not start with IT. Auditability and explainability for AI should be a demand coming from the business, in, in my case, the agency and from, from citizens. It should be Sh- that's where I should get my, my marching orders from. The reality of it is from an IT perspective, right? Traditionally, IT has been the one that's pushed data governance specifically, but I'm, I also find myself pushing AI governance out to, out to the state, but my goal is to push it out to create, uh, create a forum for conversation and then be the intake funnel for what those demands are and and shape that into something that can be actionable for the state um, within AI. And again, we're looking, I'm looking to uh, engage legislators, business leadership, uh, agency leadership, uh, executive vision from those leadership businesses uh, from from the state, uh, citizens from the state and, um, uh, you know, Create a three hundred as as much of a three hundred and sixty degree view of governance as I can um, for what we deploy as services now the the challenge you end up there is, the challenge that you end up with is do you do you go out and build this big governance model and then once you've got the big governance model built now you start start doing AI or data science or do you do them in tandem so the, our goal is to do them in parallel. We already know that we have a high degree of sensitivity around uh, a lack of population density in North Dakota. So we're very sensitive to the idea, for example, in our state longitudinal data system for K through 12 data. We already know that if we can identify fewer than 10 children uh, in K-12, we that algorithm, that data is no good. And we have to dispense with that. And so we have to create. We have to look at a different model. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so, so we're already creating some of those thresholds, if you will, and already doing model reviews to to determine uh, bias and uh, that might exist in data or algorithms. Um, if I look at if I look at AI in general as to where it's going, obviously autonomous. Autonomous is big, right? We we already are thinking about uh, Department of Transportation, a million sensors across Highway 94, which connects Minnesota all the way to Montana across the state, and we want we want IoT sensors across across that highway so that we can understand weather patterns, so that we can understand uh, traffic traffic hotspots. Now, as you can imagine, in North Dakota. Uh, it's interesting because I had this conversation not long ago with a with a company where we were talking about smart cities and con- traffic congestion. And I said, you know, traffic congestion is not a problem in this state. What is a real problem is if you're out near the Badlands and all of a sudden the uh, a herd of buffalo have decided to crash the fence and now they're now they've crossed Highway 94. Now what do you do? Well, you have to call Game and Fish. You have to call. Uh, local ranchers and farmers, uh, you have to close down the highway, so on and so forth, right? So having these sensors available to us to understand what's happening with not only our traffic patterns and um, uh, animals within the state, but it also gives us an opportunity to have an autonomous vehicle um, <clears throat> uh, traffic lane across our entire state so that so that transporting grain from farms from our autonomous farms into silos and into um, into rail cars where it can then be shipped off um, to to be processed right now we have an autonomous autonomous lane across there so autonomous is going to be very big in in this state because of its because of its rural nature um, I'm also encouraged by things like um, What's called the ocean protocol. And I've I, I just heard about this and I've just started exploring it. But, but you've heard of initial coin exchanges, uh, initial coin offerings. This is really an initial data offering, which is essentially how can, how can we share data, um, as a, as a state within the state or with, with other entities where we have a good, uh, traceability. Good auditability of what data was shared. So this this instance uses blockchain uh, to do that, so that we have this immutable uh, characteristic around data, and we can track who who initially provided that data, did it comply with our HIPAA, FERPA, FTI regulations that we have to abide by. So I'm I'm interested in in seeing where where that goes. Um, AI and blockchain. Uh and data privacy are kind of three areas that I'm passionate about because I think those three are inextricably tied together. And I, I think we'll see more and more of that start start coming together and start being integrated. Um at a state level certainly, but but also industry as well. Uh for example, um well, there's legislation now that um I I just had this conversation. Uh, the other day with a couple of representatives about creating a crypto exchange uh, within the state and data that data can be part of that exchange. Uh, so so we want to leverage all of, all of those blockchain AI and pr- data privacy within that environment, right within that platform. Um, again, to provide services for the state or and for the businesses and also to make it a new source of revenue for the state um in the context of governance um i would say there the you know certainly gdpr ccpa um and and other states um have have pulled together their their data privacy laws i know that in the state of north dakota we are we are still working on that data privacy uh legislation um that data privacy legislation though is outward from the state government. Right again, as I spoke about a while ago. Right, internally within state government, we're already securing our data. We're already categorizing um, our data and making it usable by our agencies and by our citizens. So we already have that level of governance uh, within the within the four walls of the state. Uh, but I think that 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 legislation around data privacy. And how it can be leveraged by AI is, I, it, it, I, as, I, as I read the National Law Review, for example, on around data privacy, right, it's it's beginning to coalesce even more and beginning to, people are beginning to see the realities of uh, the bad of what can happen with data privacy. If you read books like uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction or Human Compatible, right, you can see kind of the... Some of the bad things can happen if you don't have good governance, transparency, audibility, and explainability in place. Um, so I think that in my mind the technology is certainly certainly uh, morphing and becoming more usable, more pervasive, more ambient, if you will. but I also think that governance is going to ha- going to have to assume that same same uh, auditability, explainability, and transparency and become more ambient as well.
0: Yeah, we really like that book, Weapons of Math Destruction. So, you know, we always encourage our listeners to to check out books. So definitely check that out. And I am very excited for autonomous vehicles. So I'll have to have to keep an eye on what North Dakota is doing so that I don't need to ever drive again. <laughs> my ultimate <laughs> goal. So Dorman, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast.
2: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. I'm I'm um i'm I'm thrilled that I get to brag about North Dakota. Uh, again, I came from St. Louis, and I was actually one of those people who said, "Sure, I'll move to North Dakota. That sounds like fun. Um, so I think that it, it, we've got a great state. we're We're doing some amazing things here. Um, and and I say th- I say, keep an eye out uh, and keep watching because we're 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 going to change the world,
0: yes, definitely. We know that you have. Um, a very technologically savvy governor as well. So hopefully we'll get the chance to interview him one day. So, um, so again, we want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast and Dorman for being our very gracious guest who had a lot to say on the subject today. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to the AI and Government panel that Dorman participated on, as well as a link to our Machine Learning Lifecycle event. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts,